So this time we are throwing you off into the deep end of the pool in the card reading and doing a Batman graphic novel called Arkham Asylum. This is in many ways an art piece, so we try to describe pictures and images, but uh, we encourage you to follow along with us and pick us up. It's in some ways a quick read, in some ways a very complicated long read because of how bleak and dark and complicated it is. We enjoyed it, and we think you will too. Uh, in the meantime, if you're interested and you like what we do, please rate and review us. We have not gotten very many reviews yet, and it helps make us more visible. Thank you. Tap it or something. Check, All right. check, check. Okay. All right, ready. One, two, three. Welcome to hour two of recording with uh, required reading. <laughs> uh, this week it's just Mike and I, and we're doing something a little bit different. Hopefully, another experiment on the way to understanding what this American it's all experiment. an experiment. Yep. Yes, sir. Uh, we're doing the Grant Morrison, uh, Dave uh, Wiegand. What's his name? Dave McKean. McKean, uh, graphic novel, uh, Arkham Asylum. A serious place on a serious earth. A Batman graphic novel, uh, which is self-contained. It doesn't. It, uh, I guess I'll get into this briefly for Mike. Uh, you have the standard weekly slash monthly slash bi-weekly whatever version you're reading of Batman, which comes out by DC Comics, and the plethora of others. Batman for a while was their only successful line, so he would have nine spin-off comics. Right. And then every so often, someone who'd been doing it for a while, like Grant Morrison here would get the chance to write a one-off graphic novel. And it would be like the event of the year where uh, it would come out uh, once a month. This was, uh, or in this case, it would come out all at once. And if you were signed up, you could get a special deal on it. I came to it later. Uh, there's a very successful line of video games called the Arkham Asylum Games, uh, where the basic story is there. Um, and uh, but it's not this dark. Although the artistic style they try to get in the cutscenes and the drama, and it's truly horrifying. Like I, I played it through. I loved it. My wife started to play it through. Got about two hours into the game and was too creeped out to finish it. So as the game, I mean, I'm looking. This was published, and I'll just say at the outset, I'm not a comics guy. Not not a diss to them, but it's a new world to me. Um, so the, if the book came out, the graphic novel in 2004, is the game based on this? The, or, the book came out, or the or game came out versa. in uh, 2008. So it's okay. based on the, on this, the graphic the novel. On this style of, of graphics, because um, it's amazing, right? It, and it's, I mean, visually. I will say, if you've never read a graphic novel, I mean, and we'll get into this, Mike, um, but I don't know if this is where you'd want to start or not, but this is not how Batman usually looks. This is, this right. is more like an art piece. Uh, that it is a graphic novel in some ways. Right, and so just to be upfront, so before we started this, I was just talking to Nick about, and Nick obviously recommended this, um, but my experience with Batman was, you know, as a child in the 70s, watching the reruns of the Adam West show or that, that movie, um, which I loved. I thought it was great. Um, and it still is in its own way. It is. But that's my association with Batman. And then, of course, in the late 80s and 90s, the 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 films, the Batman films. Sure. So I'd never read the comics. Sure. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I do a movie podcast at one point or other. Uh, and I told the story there, but I believe now it's in the behind the Patreon paywall. But um, my first real access to this was those two first two uh, Tim Burton movies. 
Uh, the second one had just come out on VHS, and this was 1993, The Storm of the Century. You remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had rented them all. We were down in the my the, the family home. March of 93, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was late. It was uh, one of those late storms. Right. And so we were down there. We had watched the first one. We'd ordered pizza just as the storm was coming in, right? And we had started the second one, and I was eight. So I was, I was a big kid. My, my younger brother, yeah. uh, John, uh, was six, and my youngest brother, Ben, was at that point like four. Um, and then we had got, and then we started the second one. The, that's the one with um, Danny DeVito as the penguin, mm-hmm. right as the power goes out. Oh, geez. And so we're like, oh, well, we're by the fireplace. It's warm. Like, even though the power's out and it's freezing, we're, you know, we have the fireplace. Yeah. We're in sleeping bags. It's fun. It's right. cool. About three in the morning, the power comes back on. You just hear Danny DeVito doing that <laughs> laugh. It was, it's, I wake you up. <laughs> it scared the ever living crap out of me. It, it must have been a decade before I rewatched that movie yeah. again. Was it scary to you at the time? Because just visually, the penguin is scary. DeVito it's unsettling. is unsettling. And, and, and especially as an eight year old. And, and, and like they give him these, like I guess, uh, fake dentures for his, like to make him look like he has a beak almost. Mm-hmm. But like he just, it's a wet kind of like laughing. It's very unsettling. Yeah. Um, and my first uh, realization of the graphic comics uh, is one actually I, I was going to share with you and we might use in class. It's a short story collection of comics called Batman Black and White that my friend Michael got me. And they're all these little stories. Um, some are better than others, but they're just short little vignettes. And there's one in it where Batman and the Joker were at one point heroes and villains. But now they're washed out guys in their late middle age, and so now they're advertising soda. Oh, really? And so there's just like they see each other in the green room. They're like, "Hey, Joker, how are the kids?" You know. And, I love that. And Batman's like, they, they they have a fake fight. There's henchmen. There's puns thrown. Joker's defeating. He goes, and that's why I drink Raz Cola, the only cola strong enough for a Batman. That's like, hilarious. And, it's just, and I'm like, of course they would. Of course I they'd love sell that out. Concept. Yeah. What happens in middle age? Or, yeah. Yeah. Um, so then I gave you this. <laughs> right. So I'm curious, before we talk about it, can you put it in, because I'm new to this world, can you put it in context of the Batman sort of um, universe? Sure. And, I mean, there are people who are bigger fans out than me, uh, so I'll do broad strokes, and then those who are out there who know better will, you know, talk about it. Because, again, like, I came to this also fairly new, and uh, for those of you who know the, the history, the only books that I had read end-to-end as a series were... Uh, the New 52, which is now defunct. Um, and then, you know, selected stories, collections. Um, but this still stands out. That's why I gave it to you. So, um, in general, Batman is, of course, young Bruce Wayne, generally played in his mid-30s. Um, but sometimes they play with that a little bit, make him younger or older, depending on how the story fits. This is generally older Bruce Wayne. You can tell he's kind of beat up, done with it, and he's angry. Um, the Joker is generally his equal and opposite. In that, remember, Batman, by his core, is breaking the law. He's a vigilante. He's someone who's extrajudicial. Um, and the commissioner, the cops, know this. And some but with a heart of gold. Right, exactly. Allegedly, uh, the, right. Uh, there's a meme going around right now making fun of the second Schumacher movie where there's Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Mr. Freeze and Uma Thurman playing Poison Ivy. And Uma Thurman, as Poison Ivy, wants to take over the world with plants and... Mr. Freeze, Schwarzenegger, wants to make the world colder, and we're supposed to root for the billionaire uh, vigilante, <laughs> right? right? Um, but yeah, that, that's who he is. He's, uh, his parents die tragically in front of him, and therefore he wants to use the family's billions to fight crime. And he does this on the real level by funding things, and then on the private level as being Batman. Joker, on the other hand, is evil chaos, right? And oftentimes they're done Freudian analysis as you know, the id and the ego, right. you know, the, 
one side of the coin of the other, and they play this up very much in this comic. Does uh, that go back like to the original comics? Was it always that Freudian? And, and again, this I'm, I'm not being dismissive, but the normal and the fact that we even consider teaching this is you probably wouldn't have done 30 40 years ago because comics were for kids and right. comics were just sort of like light intellectual fare and then i don't know when the turning point was for that i, I mean the larger consciousness yeah. maybe art spiegelman and mouse when was that 92 when he won a special pulitzer for that i mean it's possible i mean i would also that? say that 78 superman movie is a real movie now it is a kids it's a family movie it's right. not dark i mean the tim burton movies are much darker um but i will say um i don't usually like his stuff uh all that much um frank miller though Gives comics an edge in the 80s. Okay. Uh, him and Alan Moore. Um, and the Neil Gaiman, who's not usually, is not as hard strokes, still plays around with the formula. And they're the ones who really make comics go from the 60s campy to the 80s and 90s gritty and dark. Right. Um, and I like that kind of stuff. And now some of Frank Miller's later stuff, like um, he has a series of terrorist comics, which are they're very right wing, very aggressive. All the women are prostitutes, that kind of thing. I can't take him much anymore, but like, especially his early stuff is really revolutionary in how they look at the medium. And, you know, comics have always had a place, even globally. I mean, like, we could do something on Tintin or Asterix mm -hmm. or, um, but yeah, I mean, Art Spiegelman and Mouse brings it into the world of darkness. And, you know, the idea that you could tell a story without superheroes also is something. Uh, and we can argue whether or not this is a superhero comic at one point, too. Um, but yeah. So, yeah, in some ways, and again, that would be an interesting class, and I'm sure it exists somewhere, just sort of the art of the graphic novel. And you think of like Arkham and sort of those subversive sure. underground comics. And wasn't it called underground? What was, what, yeah, I mean, it, it literally had, was underground right. comics. And so how that sort of becomes more mainstream in its own way. Well, right, because I mean, even they made a movie of Fritz the Cat. It's an R or it's an X-rated. I think it was the first X-rated animated film. Like it's, right. you know, I mean, people like uh, Ralph Bakshi, right? Uh, do with like a what is that called? Uh, like American Joy or American Spirit and Coon uh, uh, Town or something like like these are edgy, dark, mm -hmm. made for adults. Um, but yeah, so uh, Arkham Asylum is set in the world of Arkham Asylum. Uh, you know, and again, like, watching the Adam West, which is great. I mean, I watch it with my daughter. She loves it. They're fun. They're silly. They're stupid. Right. And, like, they're, they're, they're still dark. I mean, Frank Gorshin as the Riddler is, he is insane. Like, mm -hmm. he is unhinged. And he's, like, at these weird, awkward angles as he's groping at the scene, like... But, you know, they are saccharine, they are sweet, and at the end of the day, everything is resolved nice and easily with a couple puns from Robin, mm -hmm. um, which is what it is. Um, the 80s are a little bit darker, but those Tim Burton movies still have their camp value, like the incredibly phallic Batmobile, the, the kind of way that the statues lean in, like it's the same Arkham, or the same Gotham, just at night. Uh, this is very different, right? Like. The idea in the 60s was these criminals are insane. We should treat them. We should put them in asylum. But this is a very different kind of asylum. This is, well, why do they keep getting out? Why are they not better? Why are they often worse when they go to this place? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the whole crux here is that the Joker, you know, the, the, the criminals are running the prison. Um, and so Joker uh, calls up Batman, makes this kind of prank call. 
uh, where he tricks get, him into coming, right? Essentially yeah. tricks him into coming, saying that they have this woman who works in the cafeteria that he stabs her eye out. Um, and so Batman, look, you belong here with the rest of us. Uh, if you don't come in the next whatever uh, hour, uh, we're going to kill this woman. Right. Yeah. And that's how we're, we enter the Arkham Asylum, um, you know, a serious place on a serious earth. So, Mike, I, I mean, I will say, if this is a class, I feel like I'm the teacher and you're the student. Right. So, tell me where you want to go with this. Well, I'll just say, like, when you gave this to me, and in, in, in terms of the experiment, I, let's be, I was like, let's be open to it. I've never read this before. Let, let's see what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And you can't, and I'm, I'm looking at it right now, and it's tough to talk about something that's so visual in a podcast, um, so I encourage our listeners, wherever, to get a copy of this just to look yeah um it's beautiful in its own dark disturbing way right um as far as just the the images the artwork it's very distinctive um but i'll i'll say too um coming to this new i felt like i was jumping into a, a world or universe that i wasn't super familiar with as far as all the backstory of of batman and and all the other characters, like some of them I recognized. Honestly, some of them I only recognized because my son played the Lego Batman oh, sure. game all the time. So like some of these other characters I remember from like, you get the points to earn and you know, battle the characters. Um, so it felt just sort of, I just had a very little familiarity with it. Um, to the point where I'll be honest, I was confused. Mm -hmm. um, because it's it's relying so much on visuals and I think it takes a deeper knowledge of the backstory to appreciate it. So mm -hmm. I was really thankful that you gave me the 15th anniversary that has the transcript and has the sort of annotated notes. And so I, once I discovered that, and I, I try to read works from start to finish, but once I discovered that this was in the back, uh -huh. I would sort of read what the transcript was and then look back at the image and then appreciate the image for what was going on. Totally. Had it not had the script, we would uh, honestly, not be talking about I would it. be lost. Yeah. I, would, I would have to come back to you and say, explain this to me, please. Sure. Um, so there's that. So it, it can be dense and confusing that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's only just, I think, coming to it as a newcomer yeah. is um, difficult without that, that knowledge or with it, and without the transcript. Like I said, I would definitely be lost. Sure. And I will say, um, uh, for those of you who are just listening to this one for whatever reason, welcome. Um, but when we do these kinds of books in class, we let the kids choose. Right. And the group of guys who chose this, uh, we paired it with another Batman story called The Killing Joke, uh, which was made into an animated feature three years ago, I think. Um, they knew Batman. So I feel like they, they are fine. Um, but if we were to, say, do a graphic novel class, we would do a more traditional Batman story first for that reason. Um, I, think, I think if I said Batman and Joker in class, everyone would know who they were. But that might be the limit of it. You know? Yeah, and that's another thing that if you're not familiar with graphic novels, just as we, we had a, a meeting, like a group time to, for the groups, and we have, what else do we have going? Um, uh, Watchman and uh, My, My Friend, Friend Dahmer. Dahmer. And so I was talking to the groups, and some of them, particularly the girls in Watchmen, they were enjoying it, and they liked it, but it's a different genre. So just like when you're watching film, you have to sort of know how film works, or mm -hmm. you're looking at visual art. And so I think if we were to teach this, it would probably be worth spending, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or less and just sort of how do you approach 
mm-hmm. graphic novels. Like, what? How do you read? Do you read left, left to right? Do you look at the images first? Do you look at the text and just? I mean, everyone finds their own way, but um, I think there's a. It's a just like any reading is a learned skill. How do you read this? How do you best be a critical reader of graphic novels? Um, and you're bigger into this world, Nick. So, what would you say, or have you ever explicitly like taught? A graphic novel and again we have it as optional books where the kids meet in groups and we check in on them and talk to them about it but spend dedicated time with the work like this so when i was at my first job um oak mountain academy which still exists uh, despite uh, my efforts enough <laughs> um i had taught one elective on american culture and we took this approach of looking at heroes versus anti-heroes we did mm-hmm. six weeks on each and we did Batman in both halves. Um, and I didn't teach this. I taught that short story I told you about where they were selling soda. Oh, right. Um, and then we watched the movie The Dark Knight, uh, which kind of begs that same question. Uh, which one of you, which one of us is truly crazy, uh, so to speak. Right. Um, but it's hard to teach graphic novels in some ways, unless, like you said, like it's a whole class. There's a really good comic called Understanding Comics. Uh, yeah, we've, we've taught that before, right? Oh, really? Didn't we teach that? You and I? Uh, we did. Well, we used yeah. some of his stuff. Uh, he has a whole book, though. Uh, we used uh, it something about um, like the revolutionary. or. Oh, oh no, no. Uh, you're thinking of action philosophers. Right. But what, when we did that, we, we walked through like here. You look at this yeah. um, bubble and you follow this and look at the change in the art. That's yeah. exactly it. Uh, it's co- a guy named Scott McCloud right. uh, has a, a whole graphic novel. We did a chunk of his stuff to show them how to do it. Right. Um, and Scott McCloud's book, uh, Understanding Comics Invisible Art, is a great place. If, if we did a whole course on this, which one day, who knows? Yeah. Um, that's where we'd start. Um, but even this book breaks that uh, standard. And, and, you know, again, you usually read because this is America, uh, left to right, mm-hmm. uh, and you go top to bottom. Um, and generally, even when you have a big picture in the middle, you kind of walk around the frame. And I call this the Macraining rule uh, because he's the one who elucidated it to me, uh, Macraining, the comic uh, and animator who did The Simpsons. But a good character should be, you should be able to tell who they are by their silhouette, right? Like, you know Batman by... The broad cape and the pointed ears on his uh, cowl, you know, the Joker with his creepy smile, the Mad Hatter who's in here with his top hat and his Alice in Wonderland motif. Here, this breaks all those rules. Yeah, it's all so dark and so confusing, which is part of the point. There's form and content right there. And you never see Batman's eyes, which often you don't, but like he still looks like a person. Here, he's a monster. He's a creeping blackness with these kind of like tendrils of a cape coming out, or maybe you just see his jaw screaming. Uh, And it's very visceral. Um, And you say, said ugly beauty uh, last year around uh, Halloween. I listened to a BBC version of uh, Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and that's what it sounds like. You know, it's this. It, there's something beauty in this horror, um, stitched together monstrosities, and that, that's what it feels like. It's it's um, very. I, I don't know. It, it, it is very drippy and awful, uh, and wonderful all at the same time. So just visually, what he does. Um, I'm just flipping to the early page, and so there's a sort of a background image and then over that uh, there are little like vertical frames so rather than the traditional sort of eight or nine panel page um it's much more fractionalized i guess um Mm -hmm. is that is that his style normally grant morrison's style or um well um is it unique to this is that the sort of 
I will say just grammar a, of this. I don't know if that's sure. Right uh, in, in, in terms of who he is, uh, Grant Morrison, who is a uh, who has been knighted at this point, he's MBE. Oh wow. Um, is a graphic novelist. He is really good at always, as opposed to the Adam West era, kind of Bob Kane and Bill Finger era of Batman. Batman's always on the back foot in Grant Morrison. Okay. And he's really good at creating very long myth arcs um, where you have, you know, a story that will last all year long. You know, the Riddler takes over town. An earthquake shuts down all of... Um, of Gotham City because it's supposed to be kind of New York-ish and because it's an island and there's this earthquake and destruction and it's awful most of the people have gotten away the crime is rising so they just cut off all of they just cut them all loose uh, and Batman's the only law in the area um, uh, but this one shot that he did is what makes him huge um, uh, then Dave McKean the illustrator uh, again this made him huge, but he starts out in the uh, Hellblazer uh, comics, I believe. Um, but yeah, so I guess just so to, get, to be clear, McKean is the illustrator, Morrison is, is the writer. Is the writer, right? But he is very explicit in his uh, script, sort of what he envisions. So it's well, a I true mean, collaboration. Yeah, you. Right? I mean, you read the back; it reads right. almost like a screenplay. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, subtitle "A Serious House on a Serious Earth" comes from a poem by Philip Larkin uh, called "Church Going: A Serious House on a Serious Earth." Uh, it is. Um, but yeah, so this is one of those comics that redefines who Batman is, along with the uh, Frank Miller, who I alluded to earlier, Dark Knight Returns, which is also excellent, a much more traditional story, as well as Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, which I also mentioned earlier as well. Uh, so Batman goes into the Arkham Asylum, where the, you know, what's the, are running the... Uh, in the inmates running the asylum. Yeah, yeah, it's literally. Classic. And then it's classic inversion because we have another group in our class currently reading Cuckoo's Nest. So, like, who's really insane? Is it the people outside or the people inside? And inverting that or questioning that. Um, well, and, and, and so, in that way, the novel is very, I, mean, I guess, Batman himself, very archetype, very much an archetype of a hero or the, these classical sort of mythological themes. That makes for good storytelling, no matter what the genre. That's right. And, you know, I, I will add this, and I'll be, remove it if you can't hear it. But we have a colleague playing music, preparing for a retreat in the background, which is very soothing. Yes, it is. Considering the topic. It's a nice <laughs> counterpoint. Right? Yeah. Uh, so shout out to uh, Jerry All in the background and our uh, seminarian, Nick. Um, okay, so... Uh, we can get into this. Batman shows up. Commissioner Gordon calls him. Kind of, the, in many ways, it seems almost like uh, a 1960s parody. Because what, what do you start out with? Well, the Joker's on the loose again. There's the bat signal in and the there's sky. There's the bat signal in the sky, and Batman says, "I'm sorry, I'm late. I was out of town." Uh, the, the Commissioner Gordon is there, and uh, the Joker literally calls him on the bat phone. <laughs> right? Like it's 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 right out of Adam West. I will say the difference here is there's a third story kind of going on, which is uh, Thaddeus Arkham um, slowly going insane himself, right? He's the guy who's drawing the pictures on the ground. He's the one who's uh, leaving these clues everywhere. Um, and is that Morrison's innovation? That's a new story he's inserting, a new narrative within the Batman lore? Effectively, yes. I okay. Mean, Arkham Asylum is named for Arkham, but he's just usually a dude on the wall painting, you know, he's... So he's giving it a backstory to Arkham. He is. That's what he's doing, okay. Um, and it is, I mean, 
we get esoteric here real quick. You know, he goes to London and hangs out with uh, Churchill and Aleister Crowley. And you're just like, we are off to the races. <laughs> um, and, and you know you're in un unsteady hands when one of the quotes, I think literally on page two or three, depending on the version you're looking at, is from Lewis Carroll. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Which is, again, something so I, I knew as I'm reading it the first time, like I, I'm picking up on some of the illusions, mm -hmm. and I can tell there's a lot of thought and depth to this, but I can also know enough that I know I'm missing a lot. And sure. So, um, yeah, like the Lewis um, Carroll illusion I got, um, I didn't know the title was a Philip Larkin poem. Um, and then when you read the notes, you know, you really read that he is consciously and um, not that an artist isn't always doing this, but consciously making these connections and making the deepening the myth and deepening the illusions. That's right. In a, in a way that's great. Um, but I think it's hard to appreciate the first time through. Well, again, we were talking with um, Lorita and Shannon. Uh, how long did it take to, to teach this? This book is also deceptive. You could sit down in an evening and just read it. Right. But you would have no idea what was going on. Like, and I think I've read it now through four or five times. And every time I read it, because, again, I could do this in an evening. I could just be like, you know, I like this. I'll pick it off my bookshelf. And then... I'll find something new. I'll reread it. I'll slow down, right? Um, but again, nothing sets it up quite like an opening quote. But I don't want to be among the mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know that I'm mad, said Alice. You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> um, and so we slowly have um, Amadeus Arkham, excuse me. Um, entering a world where he watches his mother die. Um, I've brought you something to eat. You know, it's a scene right out of uh, Psycho or something. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the moment he f truly feels alone. And then he turns the family home into this asylum. Um, a world of, of fathomless signs and portents of magic and of terror and mysterious symbols. And you cut from mysterious symbols to the bat signal. A drippy Rorschach test of horror um, as Jim Gordon. And the reason I paired the killing joke with this book is this is whether Batman is insane and then the Joker trying to break Jim Gordon, the, the, the one man who is balancing chaos. Commissioner Gordon, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I didn't know Jim was his name. Well, so. we're on a first name basis. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, but is that the sort of thing that, that people are into Batman? Oh, of course, it's Jim Gordon. They would know that's his first name. I would guess if I'm mentioning the name Gordon, they would know. Okay. Um, but I'm just knows? curious. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know how deep the you know backstory goes or all that. I mean, I guess to you, have you seen the um, Chris Nolan movies, um, Batman Begins, Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Returns? I've seen Batman Begins and Dark Knight, yeah. So what do you think about Dark Knight? Because that, that is also that kind of Jim Gordon holding together a world that is desperately falling right. apart. You know? Right, yeah. Uh, played admirably by uh, Gary Oldman in that movie. Mm -hmm. um, and again, as opposed to the one in the 60s who's just like, well, we better call Batman. Because he's a very Irish guy. <laughs> um, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, the old Irish Two cop. Faces right. again. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah. Anyway, so they call the they, they fire up the bat signal, and you see Jim Gordon with his trademark mustache saying, "It's the Joker again," like in nineteen sixties, um, and then Batman kind of comes in. And I will say again, this is Batman looking the least human, the most like a monster. He looms over everyone. The cape is wispy, almost like he's a wraith. Like he, he's he's none of this world. 
Um, yeah, and it's all in sort of washed out grades of um, gray, really black and white, and, and sort of a, a hash. Yeah. Hash drawing. I mean, it looks like it's a pencil, like with chiaroscuro shading. Yeah, or that's something. what I was looking for, right? Um, but Gordon and the cops around him and everyone is very human, right? Like they have eyes and mouths and teeth in the right places. And I, I say that because no one else in this graphic novel really does. Um, and the one thing that, again, this is the sixth time I'm looking through it with you, like I'm, I'm going along in the graphic novel with you, we see over the phone, it literally says April 1st. Uh, so you know it's the Joker's day. He doesn't even need to tell us it's the Joker because mm-hmm. we see over the phone, even though it's raining outside and they are outside, there's a... Oh, there's a detail I missed. There's, so, a, yeah. there's a calendar, right. April 1st. Right. Uh, so you know it's April Fool's Day. Um, the Joker speaks in red ink when everyone else speaks in either white or black, depending on the scene. Um, and even noticing here, Gordon is speaking in a white speech bubble with black ink because he's a human being. Batman, because he's down here, is speaking in a black speech bubble with white ink because... They knew exactly what the hell they were doing with this whole graphic novel. Yeah, and that's the uh, the point about the Joker in red, too. And I'm a man of a certain age, and I've just recently got bifocals. It's hard to read his text for me, so I kept having like adjust that. Um, because it's written in a way that, you know, he's clearly got his own language and style, which is mirroring, you know, the form and, and the content uh, of a madman. Um, so I didn't know if that was just me. I mean, do you find that font hard to read it's jarring it's absolutely jarring next time i'll give you the the ipad so you can you know zoom in no i get it yeah and but i just wondered how did he intentionally make and obviously intentionally made it different and to your point about color um and different font for different characters but is it intentionally supposed to be difficult because i'd assume so the joker you know is a riddle in himself so to speak um and i guess we should give credit here uh there's a guy uh, named gaspar salatino uh, who did the lettering for this. Okay. And when you see, you know, Commissioner Gordon, he's speaking in standard comic font. Right. Uh, the Batman, and again, I'm saying Batman here because at one point Joker says, like, as though they're going to reveal his secret identity, he goes, I don't care, he's just Batman. He's really, at this point, there's no humanity left. He is the Batman. Uh, Batman's text gets more and more skewed as the font goes on. But the Joker is writing in, like, I mean, you wouldn't talk about Tim Burton. Uh, this is just like the font is leaning in and it's bold for no reason at certain points. Right, sort of dripping as in blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost um, like Ralph Steadman sort of ink body in, in many places. I sh- that's, that's exactly what it reminds me of. Yeah. Um, and so he's drawn in, as we mentioned, he's tricked. Um, the Joker goes, she just drew me a beautiful house. She drew it with this pencil. The one I just sharpened. Open your eyes wide, Pearl. Beautiful blue O. And then that's it. You hear a scream. Batman screams back. And then you see him at the house. And again, he has like corners. He has like hooks uh, looking much more like his cape looks more really bat like. Mm-hmm. Like he has his weird fingers coming out of it. And then we have the blood curdling laugh um, that I think of, you know, Jack Nicholson or uh, Mark Hamill in the animated show just kind of cackling. Um, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. Yeah, in the he animated the shows in the nineties. Uh, oh, really? Oh, and if you haven't seen it, we might maybe we can show some. I mean, we have no time in this class anymore. Uh, but it's done in a very um, art, um, like a very kind of neo-gothic kind of oh, art. Wow. Uh, it's it's incredible. It's one of the greatest golden age of com of, Where of animation. Did that run? Uh, WB oh, really? actually of all okay. things. But Mark Hamill was in it. Um, it's really really good. I did not know that. Yeah, Art Deco style. That's what I was looking for. 
Um, you know, Commissioner Gordon says Jesus is that poor girl, and then they're pulling him in. He goes, "Well, I have to go now." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then we cut back to the Arkham story. So, how do you want to approach this? I mean, we've been already talking for about half an hour about this, but yeah, I mean, it's tough because unlike any other work we've done so far for this podcast, is um, it's such a visual um, medium. It's it's tough to. Um, talk through so we can, I mean, look at individual images and then talk about that or mm-hmm. um, just talk about connections um, and talk more about content and leave it to our listeners to find the, the images themselves because I don't know if I can, you know, do justice to the, uh, the visuals and trying to describe them other well, than to say it's brilliant and and full of depth and nuance. Well, why don't I catch up the story and then we can start on a particular image then. Okay. Um, so at this point we cut back to Amadeus Arkham um, and his cases. Like, so what's going to happen is he convinces the mayor or whomever, I guess, to start taking patients into his home. He goes to the whole psychological like, training and one of his first pe- uh, people um, is this serial killer um, because, of course, they are named Mad Dog, Mad Dog Hawkins, right? Um, and he is brutal and horrible and he kills his victims and he disfigures them and, uh, destroys their faces and their sexual organs and that's it. And he goes, hey, it's a Virgin, a Virgin Mary idea I had. Huh. Or sorry, the, the Virgin Mary gave me that idea. I, I just, you know, I do what she tells me. And, uh, then he cuts himself to feel things like he is so almost cartoonishly evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of Arkham's first cases. And so we cut back and forth between him and this victims, and he's, uh, and we see that Arkham himself is not as stable as he should be to be in this position, right? Um, Which again is the theme, right? There's a fine line between sanity and madness, and and, uh, and again, I- I'm sure you know this. Batman's parents are horribly killed. Mm-hmm. It would be so easy to use Batman's own backstory, right? But here they create this even darker somehow um, story because Batman is that one who's just on the fringe. Um, now I don't know if your pages are numbered the same, but I'm here, which for me is like page twenty-six. Okay. And because I want to introduce the Joker, right? Uh, so we have Batman outside this incredible brick facade of this horrifying place, right? The only light comes from the fog at the bottom of the screen, and then we pan up to an endlessly tall building. Um, and then at this point, uh, Batman's rubbing something between his fingers that's on the ground. He says, it's salt. The Joker says, it's salt. Why don't you sprinkle some on me, honey? Aren't I just good enough to eat? And then we have this horrifying visage of the Joker. Right? So that point, when I read that, and, and again, I didn't realize that they had circled the whole asylum in salt. And that was... Um, Incantation. Right. So... Did you know that when you first read that and you saw Absolutely that? Absolutely not. Okay, all right. Absolutely so not. Know, no, like, because, how much I was expected to know as a as a reader. Because like the thing is, and and there are people out there who will disagree with me on this. I like Batman when he's Batman. Batman is what we'd call street level. He shouldn't be saving the world. He should be dealing with the person this far away, right? He's beating up henchmen because that's what he is. When Batman goes to space with the Justice Friends or whatever, I find that very stupid. Okay. Uh, when there's magic, I find that very cheesy because what I want Batman to be is in the lab and you can't like science away magic, right? And so for me, when I saw like the salt and the circle and the Aleister Crowley, right? Like 
the question is, is there actual magic here or is this a madman going insane? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and this isn't like a religion question. This isn't anything. This is a man who's like, maybe if I cast a spell, I can keep the evil in. I don't know. Like, because we eventually enter his little personal room where the man spends his final days going crazy and writing out these incantations. Scratching him in the, yeah. With his fingernails. Mm -hmm. He's a prisoner in his own asylum. And so for the Joker here to escape, but yet he doesn't escape, right? Because the incantation works. It holds these evil people in. Um, and we, I mean, we'll get to it here, but like the Joker is someone who's generally willing to kill. Batman is not. Batman is supposed to keep people alive, right? And so even, even though he'd give them horrible brain injuries, he's supposed to be keeping these people alive and putting them in jail. The Joker here isn't the person who kills a woman at this point. Right. To the right? point that surprised me as I'm reading that because I thought when he threatens uh, at the beginning in order to lure Batman to come to the asylum, I thought that girl's a goner. That's right. And that's the thing. Uh, we're, we go, we go uh, in my book, it's 26 to 27 to 28. In 28, we see the woman, by Pearl, let's do it again sometime. But what about her eyes? You said, and Joker goes, April Fools. Right. But... That is a very jarring image, right? It looks like one of those creepy pasta pictures you see on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's out of focus. You barely see his eyes or mouth. It's it is blood. For some chilling. reason, I it's, I don't I can't think of the visual. It's calling to mind the Omen. Is that was oh it sure similar yeah, yeah, to yeah. the Omen movie poster? Um, what it looks like there. Um, yeah, but it makes sense in the the fact that he's just again by not killing the girl, he's playing with Batman that that's the April Fool's joke um, and I mean and we'll get there eventually but Batman is the one who kills he kills Killer Croc right in a very graphic in a scene that could be out of Frank Miller's 300 or you know almost a you know a Tarzan kind of thing this monster lunges and he just rams the spear through but we hold on it for so long in in the the comic time here um, because Batman is willing to kill uh, but here, uh, Joker kind of funnels him in, and he goes, uh, <laughs> Cheer up, honey pie. Uh, listen, how many brittle bones in be uh, babies does it take to... And he breaks into song. Um, but essentially, Joker pats him on the, on the butt and goes, Come on, let's go inside. Mm -hmm. And he goes, Take your hands off me, filthy degenerate. And then we kind of go inside. Flattery will get you nowhere. And then we see a scene of Bacchanalia and Chaos. Let, right. Uh, let the feast begin. The whole idea is eventually uh, the Joker has promised all these villains, all these ghouls, um, that they'll play hide and seek with Batman. And that image itself is so complex that sort of it splits over the um, mm -hmm. uh, the middle of the page um, in sort of a two page spread there. And it's so dense that when I first read this, I know there's a lot going on and you try to look at all that, but I would have been lost without the, you know, the script notes of what he exactly he's depicting there. I mean, it's very, um, is it Hieronymus Bosch? Who yes. has those intricate sort of, you know, there's a little devil and there's, Oh my God, what's going on in that scene or that corner. And it's so dense that way. Well, and, and credit to the letterer. Everyone, like, there's a, a dozen different uh, speech bubbles. They're all written in different fonts. So right. You know that they're a different person. There is esoteric drawings and scripts in the corners. Um, and, and then we just see... like a very runic um, incantation, black mm -hmm. magic-looking stuff. Yeah. 
um, different art styles throughout. And then the Joker just has his arms spread wide and says, let the feast of fools begin. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, 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 it's just an incredible visual. Um, and the whole thing here is, presumably, Batman is still right next to him or behind him. He's not in frame, except for in the very, very bottom left corner. Um, but Batman is not in control. And that's the one thing Bat you always want Batman to be is in control of the horror. Right? He is supposed to be the light in the darkness. He is the dark knight who, who arrives. He, he is not that at all in this book. Yeah, and you get the, the overwhelming, visually, the overwhelming sense of chaos um, in this scene. Great. Um, so where, now young, young Padawan, uh, where, where do you go from here? I just want to describe the structure of the story. So as I mm -hmm. mentioned before, I recognize some of these characters from my son's Lego Batman game. But as Batman makes his way through the asylum, mm -hmm. he's encountering all these villains that are we assuming from the backstory that he is like captured before and they've ended up here? Or, yeah, or, that, that's what or I would assume. There's Morrison just creating this out of just putting this narrative in that these these people are here do they later escape and then cause problems in other batman stories or what what's the sort of arc there yeah best i can tell this is supposed to be slightly older batman um so the idea is that he's captured these guys the first time um but for the most part other than the two doctors who we're about to introduce uh he doesn't create many important people out of whole cloth um so we get in there's a i guess an orderly with a big rubber nose and he says, Joker, I've had enough of this madness. And he, Joker's like, look, you better be funny because otherwise I'm just going to kill you. I, I know your secrets. They're going to get out and you're going to die. And then we have this doctor come out of nowhere. Ruth Adams, a therapist who's like, uh, and another guy, uh, Dr. Cavendish, uh, who come out and they are allowing this madness to happen because they want to see what the inmates are going to do to see if essentially to see if any of their training has worked. And we see their training via the introduction to Two-Face. Now, uh, you know Two-Face because he's a major character all the way throughout. He's one of the more compelling. He used to be the district attorney uh, when a mobster threw acid in his face. And so he has a very distinct sense of justice. Uh, he is a criminal, of course, but it's always right, wrong, left, right, up, down. And he flips a coin. And on one side, it's clean. On the other side, it's scarred like himself. Right. Right. Um, and he'll let someone go if it comes up on the clean side, right? Uh, but in order to uh, fix this this binary guy, they first got him on a dice and then got him onto cards. So now instead of having yes, no, up, down, he has 52, 52 shades of right or wrong, right? Um, so he can't even make a decision whether or not to go to the bathroom. So we like literally we find him and the Joker's calling him out for having wet himself. Um, and it's done in a very childlike way. His hand is up, his hair is out like he's Bozo the Clown. He goes, please, miss, Two-Face pissed himself again. And it's just, it's so, again, that's a joke. It's funny. And it's depicted very funny. And Batman is looking at this man who went to law school, was elected DA, and he can't even go to the bathroom. So is this Morrison commenting on sort of the psychological... Um community in that they're they're not really helping people or is it i mean i i mean i, I made the joke earlier on this is a scientology book where all the all the psychoanalysis are criminals um but there is something here about maybe just the world of arkham like why did these all these people end up here and get worse or maybe she's a victim of that as well right and, well, and her tortured methods um, yeah and and maybe she that's why she wants to watch it unfold right and she's been corrupted in that way i never thought of it that 
Well, and in the end, too, like, even here, like, we, we know there's esoterica involved, mm -hmm. right? And so he goes, and so we will uh, transfer him next onto a pack of tarot cards, because that's 78 options. And then you realize he's going to descend further, but now we've introduced the tarot, which, again, does not inherently mean evil, but they're trying to see what sticks, right? Like, everything here is designed... Um, but even on the next page, where we have the all-seeing eye and Batman, who seems to be twice the woman's height, like, he is this kind of, again, creeping evil, like he's out of some sort of, like, Cthulhu story. Like, it's just, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. Um, but again, we see her eyes uh, and her slightly pink nose. Yeah, and we don't see him. He's in the shadow, like mm -hmm. you said, looming over. Um, um, and we have, like, Rorschach tests, and the Joker scatters them around and then just appears behind her. Um, and hands a Rorschach card to her, and she goes and scares the hell out of her. Card games, Dr. Ruth? Which, of course, that's a joke. Uh, I got to zoom in. Uh, you know me, I just adore card games. See, I see uh, two angels screwing in the stratosphere, a constellation of black holes and biological process beyond the conceptions of man, a Jewish ventriloquist locked up in the trunk of a red Chevrolet, which refers to another Batman villain. Oh, it does. Okay. Uh, the ventriloquist. Uh, what do you? What about you, Batman? And it clearly looks like a bat right in his face. And he goes, what do you see? Um, and then we cut to a bat. Yeah. Um, nothing. I don't see anything. Uh, not even a cute little long-legged boy in swim trunks, which would be Robin, right? Uh, stop wasting your time. And again, Batman here is fed up. We don't usually hear him swearing, but he is fed up calling him a prancing bastard, which is perfect. So is this Batman not willing to play the game? Like, he doesn't want to give the Joker that power. Like, I'm not going to agree to your terms well i mean again like at this point if you're asking me freudian where does batman and like I, I would say like this is you know you know the old grizzled scene from heat where it's de niro and um what's his name sitting across from each other with coffee like they know they're going to be the ones to kill each other like one can't exist without the other right and i will say at this point if that's the narrative that's going on which i would say that starts to appear in the late 80s early 90s that's that's again frank miller and such um this is like, well, Joker, I'm Joker's proving that he's as crazy. Batman is as crazy sure, as he is. Right. And that, 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 that's what I think is going on in this scene. You know? Yeah. So maybe Batman doesn't want to go there because he has that recognition of himself. Um, exactly. That, you know, in Freudian terms of denial or repression. Um, yeah. So just, just talk us through it. So as he goes through um, the asylum, he runs into all these, um, nemesis mm -hmm. former nemesis or future nemesis i guess exactly in both, both senses um what do, what do you make of that um or you know what's the importance in furthering yeah. batman's story or um in another sense i guess too this is a whole other question but what was the impact of this book on future? If this came out in 2004, yeah. where has the story continued since there? Um, well, I mean, let's address the first question. Sure. First. Uh, we have two simultaneous stories going on as Arkham goes matter, matter, and we're trying to explain why this asylum is the way it is. Uh, and that includes the incorporation of a giant statue, which will come into the next play uh, of the Archangel uh, Michael defeating a dragon. Um, and then discovering a weird card, uh, a Joker card, in his daughter's bedroom. Followed by Batman's going slowly insane and discovering that the doctor has a gun on her, right? 
Um, which then leads us through the rest of the asylum, right? Uh, Batman leaves to play hide and seek, and we stumble across everyone. Uh, the Joker gets a gun by pulling it off of um, one of these, one of the security guards. So we have two armed men or two armed people, and Batman lost in this game of hide and seek, presumably to the death, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we have a retelling of Batman's own kind of creation story uh, where. Bruce gets kicked out of a movie theater for crying too hard in Bambi, which changes the story from Zorro, which we then flash to the story of Zorro as though Batman can't remember his own past. Um, then we very Freudian there. Exactly. Um, as we get to literally a scene from Psycho, right? Um, as we start getting introduced first to Two-Face again, um, to uh, Mad Hatter, who says we're bored. Um, who's the guy much- who's leg he breaks he kicks his leg and break uh that's Clayface. okay um and again what's, what's interesting here is other than maybe killer croc who he is the one who he kills none of these are threatening villains like it's very unsettling of course but um Clayface is a very bizarre i mean he is a super duper character of the 1960s he appeared in the show right he's covered with he's a vain actor who covers himself with this youth cream and he applies so much that like it changes his DNA no, so he can okay. turn into anyone he wants to. Okay. But here he's depicted as like Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. And he's very dri- much looks like that, right? Yeah, and he's dripping and he's naked and he goes, My skin is sick, Batman rotting, and only you can help me. And this is the kind of thing that Batman would generally be doing, like finding a cure. Like in the sixties, he's the one who's like that doctor for, uh that Mr. Freeze is evil, but I wish I could help him because all he wants to do is help his wife. Like, he's the one who finds the cure for his wife. But here, this horrible man, he goes, Batman, don't touch me. And uh, he goes, I just want to share my disease. Don't touch me. And then he breaks the man's leg. Like, it's this horribly visceral, dark um, blood. And, it, and it, it's almost like uh, Jackson Pollock. Like, there's just drips of blood across the frame. They seem to come from nowhere. Mm-hmm. It's just dripping across the frame. And, and, and I'm just I'm jumping way ahead and sort of not very linear here in my thinking, which is no news if you've been listening to this podcast. But if we're trying to teach this or we teach this to our students and we're, we're giving them the vocabulary to write and think about graphic novels as a genre, is there criticism we can point to it's like we're, we're talking about music so we give them an example of music critics we're talking about film we can give them uh, is there a like a tradition of and i'm only asking as a newbie to this world of written criticism about graphic novels more and more okay i mean like, like you wouldn't see like in the new york or new york times that um i mean occasionally you would see a review of something but generally mm-hmm. not so no i mean and, and, and again it's in the last 20 years it's it's that effect that people like um i mean this is not calling you out but gen xers have of trying to analyze their past and millennials have of trying to analyze their past and seeing if there's more there and sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't but batman and superman and the dichotomy of the true justice in the american way versus this kind of i mean in some ways i'd say batman is the ultimate American hero, the self-made man who oh, of course. goes out and, and, and... Yeah, I'm just thinking more of it as a genre. So yeah. as, you know, generations age, so like television used to be just television and now it's a legitimate Prestige. art form yeah. and that, and, you know, I, I talked to Riddick Beebe in the English department who is very much into like heavy metal and that, and that was sort of very dismissive. 
Um, but there's good criticism and you know, people approaching that with, with critical lenses. And I'm just curious if there's a similar the, culture or subculture of um, graphic novel criticism. There is. And, you know, it ranges from, you know, AV Club and stuff who, who literally can go episode by episode on new series. You know, mm-hmm. like one of the, the new ones I've really fallen in love with is The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is I'll recommend. It's very light and funny and enjoyable. But, you know, I heard about it first on, like, NPR's uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour and that kind of thing. Okay. But, you know, there are Freudian analyses and, and people who write, like, a lot of ink has been spilled about Batman. Oh, because, it all holds up. I don't want to yeah. dismiss it. No, 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 I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm saying you are. But, yeah. like, at this point, um, I was trying to think of a good metaphor for you who had not heard this. Uh, to me, it reminds me of the Arthurian legends in that... Whether he exists or not, he's surrounded by a rogues gallery and they're off mm-hmm. on missions. And sometimes Sir Gawain is this way and sometimes he's this way. And sometimes Robin exists and sometimes he doesn't. And like you have the you have Batman and you have Gordon, like you always have Arthur and Merlin. But other than that, like sometimes Joker is a real guy. Sometimes he is a, a herd of people. Sometimes he's crazy. Sometimes he's the most sane person in the room. Um, and you can retell these hundreds of ways. And, and people look at it that way now. Right. Um, you know, I at one point was dabbling with this idea of niche communities for my dissertation topic and talking about comics and societies. Like, I, I never read the comment boards because I'm a healthy human being. But, like, <laughs> whenever there's a different casting, like uh, Jeffrey Wright uh, is coming in as Commissioner Gordon for this new uh, Robert, um, whatever his name is, uh, Batman, called The Batman. Uh, people, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson, thank yeah. you. Uh, people were kind of up in arms because it's like a, a, a black guy, but it was also Billy D. Williams in the 90s and 80s, and it's just people want to picture the Batman that they are as opposed to just appreciating the fact that he's a story that has been told by hundreds of authors and hundreds of illustrators. Uh, so, yeah, there is critical reception now. Um, it'll be interesting to see what it turns into in 20 years in that same way that you're saying with punk music. And as now people with, you know, patches on their elbows and... You know, a cognac, and yeah. it's like, yes, let's talk about how. Right. When it becomes, you know, for the academy, so to speak. Yeah. What did Sublime say in that one song? Uh, you know, you're doing what you do. But as a as a genre, or yeah. as we're talking about that, it, I think that's what something like this offers because it's got the archetypes of storytelling that you're talking about. Um, it's got its own language, um, as far as you know, understanding the form and how. But and then the visuals too. So you could approach this as a visual art. You could pick, you know, almost any panel, literally any panel, as a work of art. And how would you write and talk about that? How does it fit in within the whole? That's right. Um, how is you know s- sequential storytelling? Um, I think it has a lot of potential in the classroom for going beyond what is often or in the past been sort of dismissive. Oh, that's a comic, and that's not not worthy of discussion clearly there's a lot going on here that is and you could really bring a lot to it and i wonder too if it's if, if it isn't more appealing in its own way to uh, perhaps reluctant readers or kids that would be intimidated by a mm-hmm. 300 page novel or something where you can pick this up it looks you know there's its own appeal to be able to flip through and look at it visually um but there's a depth there that um goes beyond well and to your point like you have a special edition. If you didn't have it, which I would never assign the non-special edition, you'd never figure out what the hell's going on. But um, it is, what, 100 pages? Not even, like 120 right. pages? And yet, considering that I could probably put down 100 pages an hour of any book, this will take you two hours, three hours. Because you just have to, because it's, it's following the, the circuitous text. You'd be like, 
Wait, is that like a Jesus fish with like Greek like letters you just in it? Said, so even though I read it and read the notes, I didn't realize the April 1st sort of um, little calendar in the background there. And that has a huge impact on, on the story. So there's all those little details that, like any good work, it rewards revisiting. That's right. And, you know, I mean, and again, like the scene of after Clayface is found and his leg is broken. There's a guy in a wheelchair looking for Clayface, and Batman just shoves him aside. And then that's when we come across Killer Croc, who's horribly killed. Right. A very visceral stabbing. And you're just, where's Batman? Like, wasn't he supposed to be the good guy? And at this point, he's so sick of the Joker. He is just plowing through this ho- asylum, this hospital of sick people, uh, looking for the answer. And it can't but help affect him as he's going through. That's and right. So, and that's, that's the impact there. Because he is clearly losing his mind. One, two, three. All right, so at this point, we've established Batman. We've established stuff, obviously. I don't know. You probably don't know this character, per se. Uh, he appears in Batman Begins briefly, but uh, the Scarecrow, he's yeah, someone who me. has... He's, if you're a PhD in Gotham City, uh, there's a 50-50 shot that you are evil. Um, he was a psychiatrist who studies fear, uh, and he finds incredible, well, I mean, he takes advantage of that. He uses fear toxin to kind of ravage the city of Gotham. And so we see him here in this very kind of unsettling, again, it's almost like a creepypasta or something you'd find online. Like he's there, he's all black, he's lanky, he's dragging a pitchfork across the ground. Batman sees him for a second and then disappears. Like... He's, he doesn't even want to be in this scene. Right. Uh, but something grabs him. He screams, and then we fade into darkness uh, before we see the Mad Hatter uh, in a scene that's literally the caterpillar uh, from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, I, I did pick up on that visual clue. So um, my question is, what does this look like to you? Because like, it's completely asynchronous. It doesn't seem like anything matters that's what's happening, and yet it seems like everything has incredible significance. Yeah, I mean, as you're, as you're sort of asking uh, and thinking about that, it, it's episodic in its own way, but like a comic book, there would be like one villain he deals with, and then that's the end of that episode, so to speak. This seems almost more like um, a hero's journey. Like he, he's meeting these different obstacles on the way. And you're not quite sure where. I mean, obviously, he's, but he's in the labyrinth of of the asylum itself, and in running into these um, monsters, essentially, um, and how he's going to deal with that, or or what what the effect is going to be on Batman himself as he's uh, facing these. And if you want to get sort of, I guess, Freudian or Jungian, please um, facing these other other aspects of himself, right? Other sides of himself. Yeah. Um, other sides of personality or other sides of humanity, if you want to look at it more more globally that way. So that, again, blurring the ideas of what's the real difference between these so-called madmen, well, clearly they're disturbed, and Batman, who we are supposed to sympathize with as the good guy. Well, and, and, and we get that exactly here, where he's, he walks, he almost walks by the guy who creates nightmares because he's living in his own nightmare. What else could he possibly do to him to end up with the Mad Hatter who says uh, at the end of his page, which uh, he's, he's on two pages, right? At the bottom of 65 for me. Uh, Perhaps it's in your head, Batman. Arkham is a looking glass and we are all you. That's it. Right. <laughs> Congratulations. We have a thesis. Yeah. But, you know, and he sings song to himself as we fade and then we fade back into... Arkham in what's quite possibly the darkest scene 
in all of this, right? We cut back to him trying to treat Mad Dog. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back and forth, back and forth. He giggles and drools and tells me uh, they begged him and abu to abuse them. And he calls my wife and daughter a whore. And I listen. I listen for six months. I am praised for my compassion and courage. Then on April 1st, on again, mm -hmm. April Fool's Day, one year we strap him into the electroshock couch and I burn the filthy bastard as treated as an accident because these things happen. There is ozone in the smell of burnt skin in my nostrils, but I feel nothing. So Mad Dog has broken him because right. he's the one now who feels nothing. And now Batman is wandering through this man's nightmare as well. And it, it, again, it like makes you feel cold. Like It sends a chill up your spine that now Batman, is he the only hope these people have left or is there no hope for anyone? Uh, a serious place in a serious earth. Yeah, and, and the nature versus nurture idea, right? So maybe this is in everybody, but in a certain environment, this comes out of you um, or me or whatever. And so what is what is the asylum doing to these people? Um, That's right. Where, I mean, isn't the definition of asylum a place of refuge? Or Yeah, so, exactly. But we associate it nowadays more with it's a refuge from larger society where you keep these people that could be dangerous. Um, so yeah. Can you save yourself from yourself kind of idea? And, um, I mean, this book is not optimistic on that theory in some ways. No, I mean, well, yeah, we all have a darkness in us. All right. But, um, well, and I mean, like, and again, I, I don't know how much, I mean, cause we can literally walk through this whole comic. This is, blissfully in some ways almost one of those books we really could actually talk about every single aspect of because mm -hmm. it's only a hundred some odd pages um well, let's get more global then so and you've not taught this i've not taught it our mm -hmm. kids are reading it currently as yep. an independent so how long would you expect to, to give to this if you do this or would you do it in tandem with other graphic novels or do you need a sort of palate cleanser after this because it's so dark? It you know, it'd be almost funny. A lot of questions at you. No, no, no. It's funny. Like, there's a couple ways to teach this. I would almost say it would be fun to start with where we started, which is like, why don't we watch some old Adam West? Because, like, uh, because that's very cartoony. But it it reminds me of that old western where these are the good guys very clearly. These are the bad guys mm -hmm. very clearly. These are the victims in between. Like, and everyone has a hook. <laughs> And it's very simple, right? And then you go to something like, like the Batman 89 with Tim Burton, right? Where it's Jack Nicholson, and he's crazy. And uh, Michael Keaton, who's also crazy, but he clearly has an idea of what is right. Right. Right? And he clearly has a darkness to himself, too. Absolutely. Right? Like, yeah. there, there's these scenes... There's a very specific scene I'm thinking of where Michelle Pfeiffer, they're in her bedroom, or in her house. Uh, not Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh... I forget now. I'm sorry. My brain is dead. Um, finals, right, guys? Mm-hmm. AP, AP exams. Um, but they're in her apartment, and Michael Keaton is just Bruce Wayne. He's not Batman. And the Joker shows up, and he grabs, like, a fire poker. He's like, all right, you want to dance? Let's dance. And you're just like, oh, they're both crazy. Everyone's crazy here. Um, and it's interesting, too, just thinking of the film. Um, and it's true in, in any story. Like, like, the devil is always the most interesting character. And so even though he or she is evil, they often have the best lines and the best sort of um, most charismatic. And thinking of Nicholson as the Joker, he's clearly charismatic. Well, and because we don't do movies, and I love this scene, the scene where they literally create a monster, where he's in the dentist chair, he's fallen into the acid, 
and this not doctor doctor has performed surgery on him there's bloody tools everywhere and he reaches up and he asks for the mirror is one of the most blood curdling scenes all right. in all film history it's kim basinger i'm oh, sorry kim basinger is in it um but Brazelton, Georgia, right? Brazelton, Didn't she buy that town? That's right. Does she still own the town? I, I think so. I think it was a thing in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. If you own a town in South Georgia, you got to keep. Well, oh, wouldn't you keep it? That's right. It's a, it's like a proto Schitt's Creek or something, right? Um, but yeah, so, but that like, and, and then maybe you get into this, like, because it's such an American story. Like, there's a reason why Americans created superheroes, right? I, I would say. Yeah, that's what we were just talking about in our class in the. Post World War Two, yeah, I mean, and America the, saves the world. And I mean, the way I always introduce it is, someone like Superman is perfect, right? He is the alien who fell to Earth, who wants nothing more than to be an American. You know, the, you know, man in the gray flannel suit. He goes, and when he's needed to, he saves the world. And it's telling that he was invented by two Jewish immigrants who came to America and wanted nothing to be, the truth, justice, and the American dream. Like, yeah, it's perfect, right? Um, maybe that's why I find Superman in some ways kind of boring, um, but. I mean, those Chris Reeves movies are phenomenal. Yeah, so. but I mean, going back to and just thinking about storytelling and archetypes, I mean, you have the Joker, the trickster, and mm-hmm. um, that would be an interesting way to approach like all the villains as sort of echoes of ancient tales and in deep storytelling that way and, and the way that Young talks about archetypes. I mean, and this could not be more... I mean, they even call out Young at one point. Yeah, know, The collective yeah, unconscious the of dreams. Yeah, and he, he mentions that in, in his, you know, script script notes or annotated script. Well, and in, in particular here, um, and I, I forget exactly who they're alluding to here, but when we are introduced to Killer Croc, I believe I believe it's Youngian they're referring to, but I could be wrong. Oh, reptile, right? I mean, yeah, I have been shown the path. I must follow where it leads. Um, like Parsifal, I must confront the unreason that threatens me. I must go alone to the Dark Tower with a backward glance and the dragon within. It's good writing, too. Like it, It's funny for how much we're talking about the art. The writing is very tight. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kills the... And he's nearly thrown out of the building. He grabs the spear, the spear from the Archangel Michael and kills the dragon. So the, uh, Michael kills the dragon. Like That's also the story, right? Um, as yeah, well. and then to the point about the the writing being tight, and you have the visuals to back that up. But um, yeah, it would be interesting too if, like, if you were teaching this to give the students half the students the script and sort of how what they would imagine it would look like, and then give the other half the the, the novel with the graphics as depicted by um, Dave McKean, and and see how those mirror or, or what the students would. Um, imagine if they were creating their own comic yeah and and i will say like obviously they're clearly aware of what they're doing but the imagery here is fantastic along with the illusion uh when he stabs killer croc he goes what wounds are these um i am atis on the pine christ on the cedar Mm -hmm. odin at the world ash hung on the windy tree for nine whole nights surrounded by a spear yeah there's an image i forget where it is but there's you know clearly there that's one Christ. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and we have Jesus fish, and we have the uh, the word it, the words in Greek, right? The ones you always see on uh, old imagery, old iconography. But like this idea that Jesus would be Long, uh, Longinus stabbing the figure in the side is true, right? Stabbing Christ with the cedar, right? There you go. Um, 
So, I mean, we're pretty what, much at the end here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, takeaway if we want to go there already. I mean, we. I mean, already. I mean, we've been talking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, but you know, in yeah. a sentence or two, sure. I, it would be interesting to teach this um, yeah. explicitly versus having the kids do it as an independent read. We'll see what the kids that are currently doing it think. Mm-hmm. I'm just dropping in on them on Thursday, I guess, um, which was a couple of days ago. I asked them about how they're understanding and one sort of shared my initial reaction like i, I get it but I, there's a lot missing and he also discovered the script at the back and it's like oh that that's very helpful um so i think you would need to definitely have them buy this version that has the script sure. and, and let them know that it's not cheating to go back and look at that and that actually will enhance your study of it yeah um but i think it's there's a lot here you can do with the class i think it'd be fun yeah i mean in some ways it reminds me of going to like an old cathedral or something and you realize that every piece of art every gesture means something but you don't quite get it all mm-hmm. um in a similar way when yeah. you're touring a lot of cathedrals or seeing a lot of old you reach a saturation point yeah and we just kind of have to step back and go okay there's a lot going on but let's we'll come back to that later you, you can't possibly get it all at once that's right and i mean uh, i was talking we were out here at chanel day I was talking to one of my buddies, Justin Horton, right? uh, and I mentioned we were doing this, and he goes, man, when I read that, it rocked my world. Oh, really? And I'm like, I can see that. Yeah. Because it's, it's not only dark and complex, it doesn't, it, it's, it has all the familiar landmarks. You're like, I know these people, but it doesn't feel familiar yeah. at all. Um, and I guess we can end it by saying the ending almost doesn't matter because Batman gets out. He escapes. You know he would because he's Batman. To your point before, and then there'll be another telling of that, and someone might have a different variation yeah. um, or another adventure or, or another hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Batman does it by giving Two-Face back his coin. He, he breaks the man. Mm-hmm. He re-breaks the man. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love it. I, I think we could do it one day. But it's one of those things you and I have always sat back, you know, like what would be the perfect – like what would be – like if we could get the kids to understand this – then we've succeeded in this class. And we, right. we've, t- we've passed that back and forth. I think you and I could really do a, uh, an entire class just called Heroes and Villains, and this would be almost the final project. You know? Yeah, to get them to to dive into all the, Like we just talked, you reached the saturation point, but if you really can bring those skills to bear on something this complex, that would show you know yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, yeah and the next time we'll ask... Uh, Mike Beasy to be on here or something. Oh, it'd be fascinating to get his take on that. Because I'm sure there's layers of art history in here that, that I'm missing for sure. And, and I will say, you might not get it. I would say try, if only just to look at this thing. Because it is one mm-hmm. of the most beautiful pieces of... Again, it's like a $10 graphic novel. And you just don't see stuff like this. It's, right. it's like nothing I've seen before. Right. Uh, Mike, you reading anything good? Um... Not currently. Um, I saw that uh, a writer I like, what what's sort of on deck for me, is um, uh, Chang Ray Lee, who wrote Gesture Life. And we used to teach in AP Lit. Has a new novel called Daisy. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it, but I like his writing, so I think I'm going to buy that. Sure. And then I was talking to another colleague. Um, there's a book about called this well, Hiking the Silk Road. It's about someone that walks the Camino, which is I'm having done that, I'm interested in that, but this person starts in Turkey and walks all the way west. Oh my gosh. Uh, from Turkey. And um, Margaret Gillespie said, it's amazing. She said, you have to read it. So those are two um, books I hope to read in the next 
those are on deck, I would say. How about you? Well, uh, since we're doing graphic novels, I'm going to go the completely other way. Uh, there's a series right now by Marvel written by uh, Ryan North and uh, illustrated by Erica Henderson called The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. It's very funny. Uh, she started out as a novelty Iron Man character in like the 60s and then went away because it was like a joke, one-off joke. And they brought her back as this kind of, you know, and again, like to say she's empowered, you think Wonder Woman. No, she's just a normal 20-something uh, girl starting college, you know, late teens, early 20s. And she keeps getting sucked into these superhero events, but like talks people out of stuff. Like it's just very right. casual, very funny. Okay. Like her power is she has the strength and dexterity proportional to a squirrel. That's it. And she has a tail, which she has to tie, like, because it's written now. So she has to try to tuck it into jeans, and it just makes her look She's lumpy. twitchy as a squirrel? Yeah. She, and she even has little buck teeth um, and always keeps nuts in a fanny pack. It's, it's, it's very funny, very straightforward, very silly. I'm enjoying it immensely. Um, and I will also plug just a graphic novel, because why not? There's a series I found by Raina Telemager. I'm going to try uh, Tegla Meyer. I apologize, yeah. Raina. Um, but she has a series of books out, and I've read three of them guts uh and smile and i've got uh her last one so far uh but they're um ya or ghosts that's the third one um they're ya they're middle school age maybe okay but they're incredibly well done they're very sweet and it's about kids growing up um and again it's not like you know some uh incredibly complex uh, german story of like growing up to adulthood no just a year in middle school uh, where a kid had That's anxiety. complex. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like my uh, middle school experience. Yeah. But again, like Guts is about a girl who has uh, anxiety, so her stomach always hurts, and that's it. Yeah. Like, and it's 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 just really well written, very funny at times, very touching at times. I'd recommend all of her books. Awesome. Been completely taken. Um, so this was completely different. This was an experiment. Let us know if you liked it, because yes. we'll do more stuff like this if you do. Um, Mike and I are planning season two of this. Uh, we haven't given up on you. No. Um, so if you like non-traditional things, we can do speeches, short stories, even maybe movies one time. Um, but we're looking forward to hear from you guys. Yeah, please send suggestions. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. We're out. Okay. Required Reading is a product of Dude Letter Podcasting and produced at Marist School. All opinions contained therein are a product of the hosts and Dude Letter Podcasting and not of Marist School. The theme song is Feeling Good by Kevin McLeod. Find all of his music at incomtech.com, used under the Creative 4 Commons license. The host is Nick Hoffman, and it is produced by Nick Hoffman. The co-host is... Mike Burns. Thanks.